So sometimes it's helpful to start with some definitions. So here's a definition, the definition of a miser, all right? A miser is aptly defined, aptly described as someone who is reluctant to spend, sometimes to the point of foregoing uh, even basic comforts and necessities in order to hoard money or other possessions. And no doubt, no few of us have met such people, may know such people, may love such people. History is full, replete of shocking examples of wealthy misers, not just middle class, I'm talking way upper echelon, you know, that sort of thing. So here's some examples. Folks who blackmailed their friends for free meals, ate rotten garbage, scammed free clinics, even forced their house guests to use pay phones that they installed in their mansions. Those people exist. That's what a miser, that's what a miserly trend of the heart does. It's where it, it takes you to do such things. So here, here's a, an example. Here's a, a, a let's, let's run an experiment here, okay? Let's say you are a neighbor to a miser. That's your next door neighbor, and down just right next door on your street, okay? And you find yourself in need. Are you going to go to the miser for help? Knowing what you know of he or she, will you go to the miser for help? No, you won't. Because you have no sense of expectancy of kindness or generosity on their part. Therefore, you will not go to the miser for help, will you? Of course you won't. Here's the question. Is that your view of God? Do you have a miser God? That you are slow and reluctant to go to for help because your view of Him precludes any expression on His part of kindness and generosity towards the likes of you. Is that your view of God? We have some encouragement here from the Scriptures. Though that may be your view, it is wrong. It does not square with what the Bible says about who God is and how He moves towards His people. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 128. We are pressing on in this series through the Songs of Ascents. Uh, just as a quick reminder, what is this? The Songs of Ascents. This is a compilation. This is a collection of Psalms, 120 to 134, that at some point was put together as a collection for the pilgrims, the Israelites, as they would make their way to the temple there in Jerusalem from all different places on the map. They would sing these psalms together, each one tapping into a, a different theme, a different part of reality of who God is, how He cares for His people, and how we need to understand and grapple and live out of that. This psalm is part of that collection. This psalm is part of what the pilgrims were singing 
for years, for years, for years, for years, countless numbers of them. And it's for his pilgrims today, for his people, for his disciples, for his followers today. Psalm 128, hear another word of God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for its place within the larger collection of the songs of ascent. Uh, Thank you for giving it to us now to read, to pray, to sing. Oh, we ask that you would help us to take it to heart. Help us to hear what you are saying, the wonder of what you are saying. You want us to know and to embrace and to live out of. Help us, we pray that you would confront us this morning with the ways in which we do, even if we are unconscious of it, see you in any miserly fashion. That we would come to see the abundant generosity of our God. We pray in your name. Amen. What is the good life? What is the good life? How would you define it? Many of our contemporaries, and no doubt no few of us would have at least somewhere on the list. I don't know if it's your top three or somewhere in the top 20, but no few would say certainly uh, fame and fortune. What is the good life? What is the good life? It's a good question to ask, an even better question to answer. Uh, a Harvard study of adult development took a stab at this. So, for they, they, they looked at over some 724 graduates over the course of 75 years. So, this is what you call a longitudinal study. And they tracked uh, their, their work life their home life, uh, their personal conversations. This is all voluntarily. It's not like they were, you know, their houses were bugged or anything like that. Um, they tracked their, uh, their personal relationships, their health records, their medical records, all these things. And you know what they found out? Looking at these 724 graduates after 75 years, asking the question, what is the good life? You know what the answer was? It has a whole lot less to do with fame and fortune. In fact, unequivocally, the the results of the study was it's good relationships that make up the good life. Now, the results of that are well worth contemplating. The, uh, The questions that that ought to generate 
in terms of our priorities, are well worth considering. But I would say there's something else that that ought to be brought to the table. That will only take you but so far. You see, um, think with me. If your understanding of the essence of the good life has to do with relationships, now stay with me, people fail you. Friends will abandon you. Acquaintances will give up on you when times are hard, even the best of them. And I can see in the expression of some of your faces, you've experienced some of this. And let's just assume you never have and you never will. That's a crazy assumption. But here's just one startling little fact. Mortality. So even if you have nothing but the best of friendships and the best of experiences in that, we're all going to die. All those wonderful friends of yours, one day, there's only going to be one person at that table, and you don't even know if it's you. So perhaps there's another question we need to be asking, and it's not, what is the good life, but what makes for blessing in life? Now, blessing, some of you may know, is a biblical category. What makes for for blessing in life? Now, when when the Scriptures use this kind of language of God to say, we must bless God, what that means is we must praise Him, give Him what He's worth, see what He's worth and give Him what He's worth in the whole of our lives, okay? That's what it means to bless God. But when we speak of a man or a woman being blessed, what that has to do with is a sense of, of happiness, but beyond something just you know, floating here on the top, we're talking here about a deep-seated gladness, something that's rooted down within the soul. That sense of, of, being, of being blessed, it implies, the Scriptures imply when we experience any sense of blessing that we are the recipient, ultimately, Whatever the channel, whatever the means, ultimately, it's always God as the benefactor, God as the source, that uh, there are paths towards such blessing, equally so paths away from it, and that all of us are hardwired with a longing, a longing to be blessed, to be blessed by God. That's really what the message of Psalm 128 is about. The Lord is holding forth before us this blessedness, this, put it this way, the good life. Now, that may fly in the face, again, your image of who God is and what He is like, and I'm sorry if it does, but this is what the Scriptures say. Actually, I'm not sorry it does. Because you need to be, we, we all, I, I do, you do, we all need to be confronted with this reality. The Lord is, in fact, holding forth before us abundance, this good life, this life of blessing, scripturally defined. It means we've got to know what it means to lay hold of that, to, be, to receive that. Now, the, the psalm takes us there in terms of what all this means and what it would look like to be recipients of of such a life and to walk in in such a way. 
And if you've got the outline, you can see the three basic points where we're heading in the next few minutes. And it has to do with this, recognizing the consistency of such blessing. And the second point has to do with recognizing the community of blessing. And the third thing has to do with the complexity of blessing. Yes, that's alliteration. The, so we've got the consistency of blessing, the community of blessing, and the complexity of blessing. And the psalm takes us there to have a full-orbed understanding of what it is that the Lord is holding out before us and what it would mean to actually embrace that and live out of it. Let's look at these things in turn. First, the consistency. What I mean by that is this. What is it made of? What is it made of? Where does it come from? It's consistency. We see this in verses 1 and 2 very clearly. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Okay, so certainly we see some some very clear things from the start in terms of the consistency, what it is, where it comes from, its origins, its source. It begins with the fear of the Lord. And that's not, in biblical parlance, that's not terror, it's not, or fright. That's not what the fear of the Lord means in the biblical terminology. It has to do not with those things, but rather with awe, with reverence. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of how that this fear of the Lord, this way of seeing Him in all of life, is the beginning of all wisdom. In fact, other places in the Scriptures make it clear that the absence of such a fear is the root, the origin of all evil. So this is kind of important. This reverence, where all of this begins. Let's unpack that just for a minute, okay? So, we're all going to fear something, okay? Something is going to loom largest in your eyes, something. It's not a matter of if that's the case, it's a matter of what. The Bible is showing us it needs to be God, looming largest in our eyes, in our lives, okay? That's a, that's a, that's a way of understanding what it is to fear the Lord, and that would be the beginning, the foundation of all of wisdom. Well, that reverence of the Lord spills over and expresses itself in the next thing that we see, and that is obedience to the Lord. The one is a natural expression and overflow of the other. First the reverence and then the obedience. And this obedience is a, it begins with a submission to Him, a yielding to His commands, a yielding to His statutes of, of His ways, living according to His revealed Word in a way that would be shaped and expressing itself according to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Submission to God, a relationship with God. That's partly what it is to a full orb understanding of these things as well. Psalm 119, just a few pages to the left of where we are here in Psalm 128, but Psalm 119, just the opening verses of that long psalm set this up well. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. This 
image of walking with the Lord and walking in His ways implies not just submission to Him, but relationship with Him. And this is so vital for us to understand. The good life, if we will have a right understanding of what it is, begins with reverence of the Lord flowing out into obedience to the Lord. We cannot emphasize this point strongly enough. God is not a cosmic vending machine. He is not the great food truck in the sky where we come to Him and there's this arrangement that, that somehow someone has made where we come to Him with our worthy doings and trade that in for a response that we think is just from Him and equitable that we deserve. That's not the way this works, and praise God it's not. We come not getting what we deserve from Him, but getting what we need from Him, and even that is only by His mercy. Even that is only by His mercy. Now think of how transformative that perspective is on your life. That the way He engages with you is not according to what you deserve, but according to what you need, and even that is by His mercy. Let's just think, just trace this out, just one huge area of application. Suffering, affliction. How do you respond to suffering and affliction? What's the, it, it completely hinges on the way you see this the grid through which you see this. If you think, stay with me, if you think that life is about you getting what you deserve and you're deluded enough to think you've scored pretty high in the ledger and then the stuff hits the fan, how are you going to react? Wait a minute. I did X, I did Y, I did Z, and I'm getting what? How will you respond? You will be at best confused. But more likely, you will be angry and embittered. Because from the start, your perspective was completely off, which is where we all are when we're honest. Rather, if when the storm comes, our assumption, the grid through which we see, the filter through which we understand all these things is that all of life is but a gift. And the good things that I have received in this life come only from His hands and according to His mercy. Well, that's going to change everything. That's going to change everything. You see, the Lord is holding forth before us this good life. It is ours to understand what that means and then to lay hold of it. Well, that then takes us to the second point. Not just the consistency of this life of blessing of the good life, but the community. So not just where it comes from, but who is involved. Uh, not just its, can I put it this way, not just its source, but its overflow. So we need to, we've already read verses 1 and 2. We're just going to keep, keep going from picking up where we left off, verses 3 to 6. 
Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. There are three spheres where this blessing is touching down that this psalm is pointing us towards. Three different spheres, three three different realms. The first we've already touched on, verses 1 and 2. You could put it this way. Blessing coming down on the table. Abundance. The covenantal promise of blessing. A a pushback, a reversal of, of the curse following Adam and Eve's fall. And you see that reflected in verses 1 and 2, this, this promise of, of abundance and, and blessing on the table. Well, then in verses 3 and 4, we see what? We see not just, kind of, not just on the table, but around the table, in the people that you look to your left, you look to your right. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and this is rich and it's profound in, in, in what the psalmist is speaking of here. Uh, a, a wife... Uh, the image being a, like a fruitful vine within your house. And if you begin to explore that as a theme uh, in, in uh, the Old Testament in particular, what you begin to understand is that as a wife whose charm and allure is beautiful and tantalizing, she is within your house, not outside. So there's a sense of faithfulness uh, there as well. It's a rich image, actually. Children, like olive shoots, pointing towards the promise of the future and hope for those who are around that table, for the family itself. Again, rich imagery. Don't, don't, let, don't let the, you know, all I see are vines and shoots, and I don't get the, you know, for, for the ancient reader, this, this is touching into some things here. But, but it doesn't stop there. So I said there were three spheres. So you have first the blessing coming down upon the table, and then uh, around the table, and then coming upon beyond the table. Uh, You you keep reading and get down into verses 5 and 6, and you get the sense of this blessing multiplying and expanding, going from the center outwards, not stopping with the, the individual, not stopping with the household, but going out to the whole community. Peace be upon what? Israel, the whole of the God's people. Is, is who is, is being spoken of here, who is the, the, benefact, the benefactors of, of this. So it's not just, it's, it's, we speak in terms of, of, of this community, understanding the, 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 the blessedness of community and the blessing in community and it, this blessing coming down upon us, but, but there's something else here. And it's implied in what we've already said. It's not just blessing coming upon us, but also there seems to be a sense of which it's, this blessing means to come through us. And no few commentators have picked up on this. As you see, this, this, um, it's, it's like, like circles in a, in a pond going out. It begins in the center, and then it traces itself out as you keep reading through the psalm. There's this connection. We, we share, as a community, we have a shared sense of the burdens but also a shared sense of, of the blessing, so much so that those on the outer circle of those ripples only experience the blessings, according to Psalm 128, because of what they share with those in the ripples going further in. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. 
We see this carried on over, not surprisingly, into the New Testament as well. God's intention for us as a community. Uh, you can see this, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It comes out very clearly. Uh, Paul is it's in the midst of a, of a letter that he is writing to a church in Corinth. He's uh, uh, gathering a collection of, 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 of mercy relief uh, for those back in Jerusalem suffering from a famine at the time, and just kind of a snippet of this larger statement that he's making here, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, this is in the context of giving generously to the needs, offsetting the needs of your brothers and sisters. As it is written, verse 9, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here's the idea. God's provision for us is never intended to be solely for us. Never intended to be solely about us. He has a much broader vision in mind. He intends to bring us into the sphere, bring us into the means of His providing for our brothers and sisters, for one another, giving us the privilege of being a part of the process of of His providing for one another. His providing for us is never just about us. Never just about us. And that, I know, flies right into the teeth of our Western radical individualism. And it needs to. It needs to challenge that idol. And it does. And it does. The good life consists of um, these blessings coming upon us these blessings then running through us to those around us. This is something akin in terms of the radical nature of, of what we're seeing here, Old and New Testament, when it comes to this blessing in the context of community. It's something akin to, I don't know how many of you remember from school, the, the Copernican Revolution. You know, when people began to understand that it's not that the universe revolves around the earth. But rather, the earth revolves around the sun. That's a completely different way of understanding the orbits. It changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. The Lord intends for us to live a life of glad generosity. He means to free us. Can I put it that way? To free us to live a life of glad generosity. Paul speaks to this very thing earlier in 2 Corinthians. I read from chapter 9 a minute ago, chapter 8, verse 9, so striking. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. Now, let the wonder of what the Apostle Paul is saying here sink in. 
think in terms of the implications. If what he's saying is true, if in fact what Paul is saying is true, that therein means we no longer need to hold back. We need no longer play it safe. We need no longer hoard our time, talent, and treasure. No more. You know why? Because in Jesus, because of Jesus, we are rich. We have all the resources of heaven. That's what Paul is saying. Let the radical nature of that sink in. And where you're, saying, where you're thinking to yourself, that can't be, then think about it some more. Because otherwise, Paul's words are meaningless. Otherwise, they are meaningless. The good life is being held forth by the living God. There's a consistency to that. There's a community to that. That takes us to the last point a complexity to that, a complexity to that as well, is what I mean by that. Um, When you hear what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 128, and this idyllic, beautiful, it sounds like the birds are singing, and the sky is blue, and the grass is freshly mowed, and someone's bringing you a cool drink, and you know, you've, you're just sitting in your lazy chair, or what, you know, and the dog is not barking. You're thinking to yourself, this sounds like the stuff of fancy. I like it. It sounds great. It just doesn't sound real, right? Be honest. That's why we have to talk about the complexity of this, lest we just dismiss it and say, okay, Psalm 127, that's great. Let's move on to Psalm 29 now. Can't do that. You've got to deal with Psalm 128. So the complexity, there's nuance here. There's nuance here that needs to be grappled with. First, the kind of literature that we're reading. This psalm is what's referred to by scholars as a wisdom psalm, meaning it's part of what's referred to in the Old Testament as wisdom literature, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, things like that. And, and what that means is, is that we've got to understand something as we're reading it, how, it changes how you read it. When you understand the genre of literature that you're reading, And when you understand that wisdom literature speaks not simply how things always are, not so much always that, but rather how things are meant to be, how one day they will be, and how we should live in light of that. Got to understand something of the genre of the literature that we're in here, okay? Wisdom literature. I also need to grapple with this. When we are, you, th- you, know, you think I just misspoke. I do that all the, all the time, but in that case, I didn't. Not where we are, but when we are. Oddly enough, it wasn't planned, but this was actually the theme of, of a fireside chat just last week in the devotion that I was doing. Um, and, and the title of it was Already and Not Yet. So when we speak of when we are, 
we have to understand that we live now between the first and second comings of Jesus. The implications of that are massive. Massive. On the one hand, it means that our forgiveness is done. We are, by the finished work of Jesus, secure in God's sight. That's done. That said, the transformation of all things, including us, is hardly done. Our forgiveness is is safe and secure. The transformation of this whole cosmos and us from the inside out is yet to be. We've got to understand not just where we are, but, but when we are. So there's nuance as we read these things and recognizing that that comes into play in Psalm 128. Something else here in terms of the complexity of our understanding this, and that has to do with God's ways of providing. God's ways of providing. It's, we're not meant to read this and to think that quail dropping down from heaven is the norm. Those were exceptional circumstances, and the manna as well, of course. Um, it's, it's not that we should expect supply just to drop down like the rain yesterday. No, his, his ways of doing these things are most often, most normally, ordinary. So in verses 1 and 2, where we read of the blessing there upon the table, it is assuming hard, sweaty work out in the field that, preclu- that preceded that. When it's speaking of the, the richness of the marital union, it's also assuming good stewarding of the marital bonds. When it's speaking of the children there as the, the shoots, it's assuming wise parenting. Those are all assumptions that are in the background in terms of the Lord's ordinary ways of His providing. And this is something else. The prayers of His people. Intercession. Verses 5 and 6 is exact, doesn't just assume that. It is that. Go back and look at what verses 5 and 6 are. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that those who are described would come to experience and know the rich blessedness of the Lord, and that would flow not just upon them but through them to the whole of the community. That's the prayer there. And it assumes not just God's ordinary ways of dealing and not just the intercession of His people, but the interdependence of His people. You know, sometimes... Please don't hold me accountable to this. I'm just kidding. Sometimes we are the answer to our prayers. Like our getting off our proverbial duff. Sometimes we, our engagement, is the answer to our prayers. Think with me about the, the, just one example here, the family thing. Okay, the, No few people long for a family like this and don't have it, right? No few people have a family and wish it would look a whole lot different. Does Psalm 128 have nothing to say there? Do the Scriptures have nothing? The Lord has everything to say to that. Everything to say to that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. 
Mark chapter 10 and the, the ways that sometimes the Lord intends to meet uh, the, the, the lacking we experience and the longing that we feel. Mark chapter 10. So this is after the, the exchange between Jesus and the rich young man, the rich young ruler, however you want to describe him in Mark chapter 10. And um, Peter is flummoxed by all of this because he, he's thinking, well, wait, if the rich aren't secure and we've given everything up to follow you, then where does that leave us? And Jesus speaks right into this. So verse 28, Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Here's the idea. How is this longing for family and the lack of it to be met in the context of a church? You just answered it with the question by the church. We are our family. The bonds that exist between brothers and sisters in Christ supersede all others. All others. Jesus could not be clearer on this point. How does He then meet the lacking and longing that we have for such experiences as, as in Psalm 128 in this life? one another, with one another. See, there's a complexity to the good life, right? Not just the, co not just the, the coherency of it, not just the community of it, um, but the, the complexity. There's nuance here in how he provides for us. I hope no, one, I hope no one's ever left you with the impression that there's a, a simplistic Bible in your lap. God's ways are never simplistic. They're always realistic, according to what is true, according to what is. And that should hardly surprise us, considering the source. Never simplistic, always realistic. That's what we see here holding forth this good life before us, and ours is but to lay hold of it. Now, the posture, wrap it up by saying this, the posture of receiving such a life from His hands includes at least these two things. First, the humility, a humility that is willing to receive it from His hand. It also includes a sensibility a sensibility to receive it with the consistency, with the community, and with the complexity in mind such that we're not insisting on it coming another way as though we somehow have a right to insist as to how God will work with us. So let me try and image that for you, uh, paint a picture for you. There is a scene in the second Christopher Nolan Batman movie the Dark Knight, in which there is this accountant who's been examining the books of Wayne Enterprises, okay? And he has this confrontation 
with this guy by the name of Lucius Fox. And Lucius Fox, he's played by Morgan Freeman in the, in the films. And Lucius Fox is Bruce Wayne's, how shall I say, technical consultant and provider for Bruce Wayne's night job. Okay? And so this accountant says, hey, I've found this discrepancy in the numbers. Basically, he's figured it out. And so he says, if you want me to be quiet, you need to pay me $10 million a year for the rest of my life. To which Lucius Fox says this, let me get this straight. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands, and your plan is to blackmail this man? And the man's face falls, and Lucius Fox just simply says with a smile, good luck. It's a great line. It's worth seeing the whole movie. It's a madness, you see, a madness that seizes us with presumption, or presumption that makes us mad, insane, before the living God thinking that somehow it's ours to make the demands. Somehow thinking that it's ours and our right and our place. And sometimes it's just good to, be, to read texts like this and to be reminded of whose world this is and who we are as finite creatures and fallen sinners and who He is as the infinite Creator and the gracious Savior And in our saner moments, we wouldn't think for a second about insisting on our way because we see what He's offering to us. The Lord is holding forth the good life. Understand what that is and lay hold of it. Let's pray. Lord, there is but one reality. We know that you're making that very clear. Speaking into our madness and our fog and our foolishness, there's but one reality. There are many opinions, and there are many ways that we attempt to defy that reality. And the more we defy it, the more swoons and scars we accumulate. Oh, would you help us not to resist your wise, good design? You are not just the architect. You are not just the builder. You have spoken. You have spoken. And you are speaking now even through our longings and through your written word and through the incarnation, our Lord Jesus ask that you would give us open ears and tender hearts. I pray these things in your name.